Welcome to the Total Sports Recall Podcast. Today's special guest is a very accomplished author who has just produced a new book titled The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. The writer is Michael McCambridge, who has authored many books. Michael McCambridge was born in Houston, Texas, but grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. He is a graduate of the Barstow School, and after two years at Marquette University, Michael earned a BS degree in journalism from Creighton University. A year later, he earned a master's degree from the Middell School of Journalism at Northwestern University, one of the finest journalism schools in the country. With the book, The Big Time, Michael McCambridge covers some of the biggest and most impactful events from the decade. That was the 1970s. Michael's accomplishments are many, even too many to listen to this podcast. His work history shows editing and writing work for the New York Times, which included the bestseller ESPN, Sports Century. He also authored the book America's Game, the epic story of how pro football captured the nation, which NFL Films had rated as the top pro football book of all time. Michael has also done some public speaking events. As Total Sports Recall is referred to as sports from a different angle with the Pittsburgh twist and the fact that I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, I found it remarkably interesting that Michael had written a biography of our past great coach, Chuck Knoll, that was titled Chuck Knoll, His Life's Work. Besides the New York Times, Michael has also contributed columns to the Wall Street Journal and Sports Illustrated, as well as other publications. Michael is the proud father of two children. He currently resides in Texas and is a big-time Kansas City Chiefs fan. Michael, I welcome to the Total Sports Recall Podcast, and in reviewing your work history and credentials as a fellow sports writer, what I've accomplished seems insignificant compared to what you achieved. Your resume is extraordinarily impressive. For that, it's quite an honor to have you visit my show. Well, that was quite an introduction. It's an honor to be here. Glad to be with you, Hart. Well, I'm glad to have you on. Uh, there's lots to talk about. The first thing I would like to ask and mention, Michael, is my, this, this new book you wrote. When I saw the release of the book, my eyes lit up because the 1970s is the decade that I grew up in while living in Pittsburgh. And talking about the 70s excites me because, for me, that was the greatest decade for sports ever. What was your inspiration for authoring this book? I think the first thing is, you're right. We all, all of us who love sports, wind up romanticizing the era in which we fell in love with sports. And I was as guilty of that as anybody. But I think what happened was a few years ago, I was um, thinking about what my next project was. And I was struck by this, this dichotomy of all the things that changed in the 70s. And just within the first two weeks of the decade, you get 
the University of Texas wins the 1969 national championship by beating New by beating uh, Notre Dame in the Cotton Bowl on New Year's Day, and it's sort of the the last vestige of the past because that Texas team was the last all white national champions in college football, and then ten days later in New Orleans in Super Bowl four, the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Minnesota Vikings. And the Chiefs were the first team in pro football history that had a majority of starters who were African-American. And just in that, that small period, you saw the past and the future exemplified. And I realized that for all of the reputation that the 70s has in sports as, as well as other realms, as being a time of, of long hair and low inhibitions and, and craziness, which was certainly all well-founded, by the way, that it was just a truly historical, decisive, critical decade in the history of American sports. And that while every decade, of course, brings change, sports looked and felt different by the end of the 70s than it did at the beginning. And that's what I wanted to write this, this broad social history about, was how sports moved into a more central role in American popular culture over the course of those 10 years. Absolutely. And before we get into some of your writings and this book, um, from my understanding, what I can see uh, on camera, obviously a, a huge Chiefs fan. So I need to ask you if you know the character Weird Wolf that's at all the Chiefs games. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I see that guy. I get back, you yeah. know, I live in Austin now, so I get back for, okay. a, for a, a game like once a year. And so I, I see all the different people dressing up in in various forms of, you know, I don't know how it is with you and Pittsburgh, but yeah, um, I always note, why do they show the most ridiculous looking fans of my team? Why don't they just show, why don't they just show like the, like the dignified, smart looking, involved fan? No, they got to show the fans who look like cartoon characters. And I'm sure it's, you know, I'm sure if you're a Raiders fan, you get tired of seeing oh, the God. black hole, but that's, that's just what yeah. we're well, first with. Oh, I had done some work with him before, and uh, so that's why I was wondering if you knew him. Uh, he's quite—he's been doing it forever. I mean, I met him back in 2001, so it, uh, you still see him on television, same outfit, doing the same thing. Uh, yeah. But okay. So as far as the big time goes, I have yet to finish the book, but I must say, from what I've seen in the book thus far, this is like a 1970s encyclopedia. Not only can this book serve as a reference tool. The stories in it are so in-depth, and your hard work and research absolutely show in this book. For anyone that enjoys the, enjoys the 1970s, this book not only covers sports, but politics and social agendas. It's just an incredible piece of work. How long did it take you to get this book to press, Michael? How long did it take you to get this book to press, Michael? Well, I, I pitched the idea in the late fall of 2020, so it was basically two and a half years from there, all of 2021, all of 2022, and the first half of this year. Um, and I, I appreciate the kind words. I make no claims on it being encyclopedic. One of the, one of the realities of a book like this is you have to leave some things out. So, you know, there's, there's relatively less than one might think about, say, the, the dolphins going undefeated in 1972. Or that great summit series between Canada and the USSR in 1972. Um, those things are mentioned, um, but 
but with a with a story like this, with the different threads that uh, in the narrative arc, there are things that necessarily have to be emphasized and others that have to be left out. I hope what I accomplished in the end was giving some sense of a flavor of what it was like to be involved in sports, to be a sports fan over the course of that decade. Just the, the simple mundane things of, and I'm sure you remember this as well, how damn hard it was just to get a final score of an out-of-town game yeah. at the beginning of the 70s. You know, I, I can remember growing up in Kansas City, say 71, 72, I was eight or nine years old, and the Royals might be playing out on the West Coast, and so I would go to sleep without knowing the final score and wish up in the morning, run out and, and check the sports page, and there would be a single paragraph saying, Bulletin, um, when the paper went to press last night, the Royals led the Angels 3-2 to two in the eighth inning. And yeah. I would then go to school, still not knowing the final, and it wasn't until you got back home and you could read the afternoon paper with the game story and the box score that you could actually find the result of a game that was played nearly 24 hours ago. And, you know, those sorts of things are hard to explain to anybody born after, say, 1980. So yeah, That's right. Yeah, Gosh, that brings back so many memories. You're right. And when I had Terry Hanratty on last week, uh, of course, he was at the game for the Immaculate Reception. So that was quite an intriguing conversation. But I told him in Pittsburgh at that time, they had the blackout rules. So if your home game didn't sell out in your city, it was not put on television. So right. I was all, all 12 years old. I can still remember sitting in my driveway, putting the radio on, having to listen to that Oakland Raiders game on the radio, not able to see the, the broadcast. Book. Yeah, and that was that was all too common at the beginning of the 70s. And, I, you know, the other thing about that time period that really stands out was one college football game on every Saturday. Yes. Just one. Yeah. And the, the game was not necessarily the best game. It was the game that was picked in March based on every team could, could be on TV. I think it was five times over two years. So if Colorado, Oklahoma was scheduled in March, it didn't matter how many games the Buffaloes had lost going into that game. That was, that was what you got the third weekend in October, whether you wanted it or not. And, yeah. and so there was so much about sports at the beginning of the seventies that was sort of on the margins of American society. I can remember walking down the street and you would see um, nobody in sports-themed caps, no um, licensed apparel. You could, you know, you could go days and days without seeing any evidence out in the general public that sports was going on, and that obviously changed by the end of the decade. Absolutely. I remember it. If I remember correctly, it was, there was a lot of Notre Dame back then on Saturday afternoons. Oh. <laughs> and Sunday morning, because you'd get the Notre Dame replay before the pregame shows really kicked off and established themselves. Part of Sunday mornings would be that condensed one-hour replay of, the, of Notre Dame pounding Navy or Northwestern or Army or one of their traditional foes um, the next day. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I watch a few, I still watch sports here and there, but it's so overwhelming with how much coverage there is now. Uh, you're right, it's nothing like it was back then. It's too overwhelming. You can't, it's impossible to watch everything. It's too much exposure. Um, so we only have limited time in the podcast, but in the big time, there is 
so much information you covered, and I was not even sure where to begin with the questions. So I'll pick out some of the major topics and get a reaction from you. All the events you spoke of in the books brought back memories for me, because as I remember, I remember them all. Let's begin with Muhammad Ali, his impact on society, his trilogy of fights with Smokey Joe Frazier, which were some of the greatest boxing matches ever. Can you briefly summarize Ali's impact, what his three matches with, and what his three matches with Frazier did for boxing? Well, I think that Ali's story is inextricably bound now with America's long reckoning with the Vietnam War. And it was clear that Ali was viewed differently by the end of the war than he was when he chose not to, um, not to accept induction in the military. And you can still see, you can start to see a change in that by the first Ali Frazier fight. And that first Ali Frazier fight, for anybody that wasn't around, was one of the most anticipated, most hyped, um, most discussed events in sports history. I was, I can remember talking to the announcer, Bob Costas, and I asked him once, you know, of all the, the millions of events you've, you've watched and covered and called, anything stand out as the, as the one you were most excited about when it began? And he instantly said, that feeling, he was at Syracuse University then, that feeling of going to a closed circuit theater in downtown Syracuse with this full, with this full theater of people who were passionately invested. I think that, um, the, the first Ollie Frazier fight was one of a handful of sports events. Billy Jean King, Bobby Riggs battle of the sexes would be another where who you were rooting for said something about what kind of person you were. What your view was in society, what your what your view was of of integration in America, what your view was of the Vietnam War, and because of that, there was so much expectation. And then that fight, nineteen seventy one. Remember, yeah, both fighters are paid two and a half million dollars, which went a long way in nineteen seventy one. And I think, in my view, that that was the moment. Yeah, that was the moment when American sports fans, I think, first understood this kind of broad drawing power that athletes had, that they weren't merely athletes, they were also entertainers. And the sort of revenue they generated was consistent with, you know, any of the stars of the day, Paul Newman or Robert Redford, their ability to open a movie, you know, and it was probably time for them to start getting paid commensurate with uh with what their drawing power was and so that to me uh was the first hint the dawn of athletes getting compensated in in the way they should be and then of course ali such a charismatic figure such an important figure in terms of white america understanding the black experience and Mm -hmm. the, the really fascinating thing with me as i as i went back and researched that fight was so many people were rooting for Frazier, and yet after Frazier won, he he was not really greeted as a hero. He went around the country sure. with his backing band, the Knockouts, and he was a not half the soul singer. <laughs> um, but people people just they they weren't drawn to him the way they were to Ali, and sure. Ali seemed to get bigger even in defeat, and obviously had a much broader impact on society in in the years to follow. Yeah, I forgot all about Joe Frazier singing. That's that's funny. 
Um, and, and I watched all three fights, uh, obviously the 71 one in replay, but, uh, the next two I was able to see and, oh my gosh, they were such great boxing matches. And that third one was such a battle. Um, I mean, I, Joe Frazier had so much heart, so you got to give him credit for that. He was just one tough character. Uh, for sure. And it's funny you mentioned Bobby Riggs and Billy Jenkins, because that's where I was going to go next. Uh, so we'll shift to tennis, battle of the sexes. Between Bobby Riggs and Billy Jean King, that was such a mega event. And, of course, I watched that. Uh, what do we learn from that match? And for those who might remember that night, may not realize Bobby Riggs had already previously defeated the great part of the court. Also, do you think we may ever see another event that parallels this one? No, I think the, the, the event would have been inconceivable a decade earlier or a decade later. Um, but at that time, you got to remember the context um, we just had the Equal Rights Amendment passed in Congress, was sent out to the states. Roe versus Wade had been handed down less than a year before then. Um, and women were beginning to demand equal opportunity, equal pay, equal rights. And there was, as you well remember, an inevitable pushback against that. Sure. And Bobby Riggs was sort of the the, the resident male chauvinist pig in the realm of sports. And it was particularly <laughs> acute in, in sports because Ridge Stick, which was that, um, women belonged in the, in the bedroom and the kitchen in that order was very dismissive, not just of women tennis players, but of the idea that women could be athletes at all. Um, he had tried to play Billie Jean King for, for years and she just basically ignored him. But I remember talking to Billie Jean, who said that when she was she was on her way back to the States from a tournament in Japan, and there was a stopover in, in Honolulu, and that was when she found out the results of the Riggs court match. And she said to her friend Rosie Casals, oh, shit, I've got to play him now. Because she knew it wasn't going to stop until he had been defeated. And I think I, I think he would be really hard-pressed to find an athlete who went into a sports event under more pressure than Billie Jean King did on that night of September 20, 1973 against Bobby Riggs. Because she knew not just that if she lost, the rest of her career would be defined by losing to Bobby Riggs, just as Riggs's life was defined after the fact by losing to Billie Jean. But she also knew that it would empower the people who were so eager to dismiss women as athletes. And so she was, she was sort of playing with the entire women's movement on her shoulders. And I think that's why it was such a hugely important match, not just in terms of tennis, but in terms of the society as a whole. Yeah. And interesting. I just I thought just crossed my mind. Well, Bobby Riggs was much older when they actually played. He was a pretty good tennis player. Yeah. In the days. Yeah, so in his yeah, younger days, Wimbledon, he won Forest Hills. Yeah, so had he been younger in his prime, what do you think the result would have been then? Oh, sure, and and Billie Jean was the first to say that she could not have beat any of the top 100 active players mm. in men's tennis in 1973. She felt like there was, you know, it, the, the point wasn't that the, the best um, female player could beat the best male player. The point was that 
you know, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put the best welterweight against the heavyweight champion in the world in boxing, but that didn't devalue the welterweight champion. And so she, she made the same, she made the same point about uh, men and women in, in sports. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's go to baseball. Babe Ruth's home run, home run record. Um, well, let's get to this one first. Uh, baseball is always known as America's past, pastime, favorite pastime. In the big time, you identified the National Football League as becoming America's most popular sport. Now the NFL is bigger than ever, but boys, the game changed since the 1970s. In your opinion, Michael, are all the changes that we've seen for the better or worse for the sport? Are we talking football here? Football, yeah. I'm sorry. No, I, I baseball. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, <laughs> I got my I got my questions all confused up there. So yeah, we're talking football. Yeah, we're talking. Uh, yeah, I think I think one of the things that was clear in the '70s was that football was a horribly violent sport, and I don't think people understood then what the long-term ramifications of that violence was. But there was already efforts within the National Football League and college football as well to make the game less violent. You know, the clothesline tackle is outlawed in the in the uh, 60s. By the end of the 70s, Deacon Jones' trademark move, the head slap, where the defensive lineman just slaps the side of the helmet of the uh, offensive lineman, was was outlawed. Um, there was this. There was this gradual growth in consciousness about the safety of the game. Um, and I think as we get to the 21st century and we see what the long-term implications of uh, repeated head trauma can be, it's entirely understandable that those changes were made. Um, I'm still a fan today, and the game is plenty violent um, to satisfy the bloodlust in almost any American sports fan today. I, I don't think, you know, that there's, there is that complaint that you hear, um, now and then by people about, oh, they've sissified the game. Um, anybody who's been down on the field, um, uh, and seen NFL players hitting each other, I don't think they have that opinion. So I think the game is better and faster and more exciting now. And it's, um, significantly safer than it was in the seventies when you would have, you know, headhunters and, you know, scenes like, uh, George Atkinson basically assaulting Lynn Swan. Um, uh, I was going to bring that up next. You know, it, it just, uh, that had to go away. Yeah. And I remember watching that play, that exact play. And it was a Frank O'Hare's running play on the opposite side of the field. And Swan took a shot to the helmet. He had a concussion after that. And I know, I remember yeah. Chuck Nolan, it might've come up in your book too that he was actually interested in pressing charges against him for assault because it was mm -hmm. such a um, yeah. devastating shot. It was unbelievable. But I know today's rules, too, some of them are pretty tight. Uh, watching the Jacksonville Steelers game the other night, there was some holding, defensive holding, interference calls that were just ridiculous. Um, so it gets a little frustrating. You know, they call, yeah. they make those calls much tighter now. Um, Joey Porter Jr., I think I got called for a hands to the face or something that we're holding and he, he was hardly even touching the fighter receiver and I was like, oh this is ridiculous. But um yeah, I think the athletes are far better these days. Um uh, but you know when you grow up in the seventies and you watch that kind of football, you do miss it a little bit seeing the hits like Jack Lambert used to put on guys and throwing people around like ragdolls. Uh, that was fun back then. 
Right. Uh, well, now I'll go to Babe Ruth and his home record of 714 career round trippers. That lasted 39 years until Hammer and Hank Aaron broke it in 1974. What Aaron had to endure if that a whole run, home run chase was very trying on him because of racism and how he, as an African-American, was on the verge of breaking the white Babe Ruth's record. Aaron received death threats and more. How do you think he managed to get through that period in his life? And more. How do you think he managed to get through that period in his life? I think the, the same way he broke the record, Henry Aaron was um, this stoic, resilient presence, and he would show up to work every day, and he he was excellent in the craft of baseball, and he, you know, as anybody growing up in the Jim Crow South, any African American growing up in the Jim Crow South would tell you there were things that you sort of had to absorb to to get by. And Aaron, in that uh, difficult year in which he was integrating the Sally League in minor league baseball, um, had heard it all before. And what was, I think, most interesting about Aaron's home run chase was that while a majority, a vast majority of American sports fans supported him and and were, were rooting for him to break this most hallowed record in sports, we also got to see the dark underside of some small portion of American sports fans. And make no mistake, if you see if you see an African-American or a woman speaking out about sports on Twitter, there is no doubt that that dark underside still exists of racists and sexists sure. and just objectionable people who who can't stand the thought of somebody who doesn't look like them excelling in this arena. And I, I think that put up a mirror for American sports fans that they really hadn't seen before. And, and they sort of, it was a reckoning that they had to, that they had to deal with. And it was also something that Aaron had to deal with on a daily basis. Um, but he did it without, um, without ever losing his cool, without losing the, the sort of dignity with which he carried himself. And he just weathered it. And I think it was it was so telling that when it was when he finally broken the record, April of 1974, he just said, "Thank God it's over," um, because he he didn't have to deal with it anymore. And I also sure. think it's so telling of the environment he was in that a day after Henry Aaron breaks the record, the Braves draw like ten thousand. I mean, it was just like <laughs> the. the the support of the Braves in Atlanta was so shallow. Um, there was the day in the, I think, next to last day of the 73 season, when he was still chasing, you know, he was only a, a home run or two away. The, the, they had like 25,000 empty seats in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. It was the Braves fans back then were not, um, were not what you would describe as diehards. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I um, went to all three World Series games in 1979 in Pittsburgh, and um, mm -hmm. it just it it was exciting to be in a World Series. But Pittsburgh fans they they have a a loyal fan base to the Pirates, but it's not overwhelming. So they've always had a problem with attendance. And I remember back in the, I think it was the 80s, they were four games behind going into the final weekend, and they were playing the Phillies, who were in first place. And so four games to play, they could tie the division, and 
there was a twenty-night doubleheader when they used to do that back in the day uh, on Friday night. Right. They won both games, and so now they only had two games to go. And the next day, it was a complete sellout, standing room only on Friday night. The next day, mm-hmm. I went back for the next game, and it was like twenty thousand people in the stands. And I was like, "Wait a minute, we're still in the race." So where is everybody? The night before, it was standing room only. I couldn't believe it. That right. was such a disappointment as far as the fan base goes. That the next day, when your team is still alive, nobody came to the game. So, and they end up losing the game. Uh, but back to this question: Do you think Henry Aaron or Jackie Robinson had a tougher time going through what they went through? Oh, no question. Jackie Robinson had a tougher time. I think that um, you know, integrating an entire sport. Um, especially at that time, 1947, um, that was, that was hugely difficult. That was on a different order of magnitude. And I, I'm pretty sure Henry Aaron himself would, would say that. I know he had a deep, uh, respect for Jackie Robinson. Um, but there was still, there was still plenty of ugliness in the early seventies as, um, as anybody who saw some of the hate mail that Aaron received can attest. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, in the big time, you touched on Kurt Flood and his challenge of the reserve clause, which resulted in the creation of free agency. Do you think with the onset of free agency, was it better for baseball or did it forever damage the game? Because since that time, we've seen so many players switching teams because they can. As a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, we have experienced so many talented players that began their careers with great numbers for the Buccos, all in the league for greener pastures, such as the case with Barry Bonds, new home run came. Barry Bonds, new home run came. Well... Let's take a look at the economic structure in the relative sports. The problem there, as I see it, isn't free agency. The problem is that Major League Baseball is the only major sport that doesn't have a salary cap. Exactly. You know, the Juan Soto being dealt from the from the Nationals to the Padres, and now he's probably going to be dealt again, that's a product of one thing. That's a product of some teams cannot compete with the most um, wealthy teams in Major League Baseball. You know, you would never see, there was never a question of, say, oh, the Kansas City Chiefs have to trade Patrick Mahomes because they can't afford to keep him. Yeah. Or the the Pittsburgh Steelers have to deal Ben Roethlisberger because they won't be able to afford him. Why? Because the NFL has a salary cap and other incentives in place for franchise players and such to be paid. But baseball doesn't. So those small market teams in baseball, like the Brewers, like the Pirates, like the Royals and other teams, part of the part of the challenge is for much of the past 30, 30, 40 years in a free agency age, the challenge was how to most ingeniously get rid of your best player every year. <laughs> You know, that, that that was basically what it came down to. Yeah. The Royals had Johnny Damon in the 90s, couldn't keep him because they couldn't afford to keep him because he could make twice as much money in New York or Boston. Same thing happened with the Pirates, still happens with the Pirates. Um, that, owes to the, that owes to the larger financial system of, of that sport. But I think to your point about Kurt Flood, one of the things that, you know, you're, you're aware of things in different lanes, and then with a with a book like this, you start trying to put together the pieces. And I knew about Kurt Flood. 
I knew about John Mackey's lawsuit against the NFL. I knew about Oscar Robertson's lawsuit against the NBA. But it wasn't until I started doing research that I realized that in the three major sports in America, the three players who challenged the reserve clause and fought for free agency in the courts, in each of these cases, was an African-American. And it was, you know, it was, I realized it was probably not a coincidence that in that time in our nation's history, it was black players who were willing to put their careers on the line. I remember asking the uh, the Steelers' great lineman, Joe Green, about that. And he thought about it for a minute, and he said, I think what it was is at that time, the black players were more aware and more sensitive to issues of personal freedom and autonomy. Wow. And so the black players would have been more willing to risk everything. I mean, Kurt Flood, Kurt Flood, Oscar Robertson, John Mackey, they were all all-stars. They were all really smart. They were all brainy players. None of them got a chance to coach, be general manager, administrators, nothing. They were all effectively blackballed in their individual sports for the stance they took. Um, Oscar Robertson, according to Jerry West, still bitter about it, and understandably so. Wow. I think, was it Frank Robinson that became the first major league baseball manager, African-American baseball manager? I think that was right, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, 1974. Yeah, look how many years it took to reach that point. Um, and then the free agency, I remember back in the 70s, too, with George Steinbrenner, and that's why the Yankees were so successful, because he had so much money. And I always hear that, you know, that when he's buying his team. You know, he's, that's why they're winning. He's spending all the money on these players, the money to spend. And if I remember talking... Yeah, I remember talking to Don Fear who was the head of the Players Association in the 80s and 90s. And one of the things he said he appreciated about George Steinbrenner is George Steinbrenner, almost alone among the owners, never said, oh, players aren't worth all this money. <laughs> he sort of recognized the value of players, recognized the commercial value, and was not happy, but was certainly willing to pay them the market rate um, to get them to play for the Yankees, which I thought yeah. was an interesting perspective. Yeah, it's a shame because, I mean, back in around 2013 when the Pirates had that little run in the playoffs, they had such great teams. They were really doing really well. Um, and, uh, you know, then they all left a little bit by a little bit to other teams for bigger contracts and whatnot, and the team has never been the same since. Uh, and that's why I think um, in this book I talk about David Stern before he was the commissioner of the NBA when he was general counsel and then vice president. He, he came up with this really ingenious idea, which has been parroted in so many other leagues now, which is to have a salary cap, but tie that cap to overall revenue so that as the money comes in and increases, the players are getting more. And that was, you, you started to see that at the end of the 70s, the first instance of players and owners genuinely being partners. And as we've seen in sports, as sports gets bigger and more and more sports gets on TV, there's plenty of money to go around. And it was one of the things that happened in the 70s was that money began to be shared more equitably than it historically had been.
So why is it that baseball won't adopt a salary cap? Every other sport has it. Because baseball has the strongest players association, and they've convinced their membership that it's better if Shohei Itani can get, you know, whatever he's going to get, $600 million, um, whereas other sports and their players associations have recognized that the greater good comes in having every team be relatively competitive. I mean, the NFL has really set the, set the standard for competitive balance, not just, you know, the worst go first in the draft, but the slotted schedule. So that if you finish first place, you're going to face a tougher schedule than the team that finished in last place. And those things create, as we see every April in the draft, no matter how awful your team has been, the fans of the Arizona Cardinals and the Houston Texans could go into the draft feeling, maybe this is it. Maybe we're going to be better this year. Maybe we're going to, you know, and that that same um, optimism does not exist in places like Pittsburgh and Kansas City for baseball because those those teams cannot financially compete in the present environment. Mm-hmm. And then you take this year's World Series. I mean, I didn't watch any of it, and then I read about the ratings that were. I think before the last game, before the the fifth game. Um, they said the ratings may end up being the lowest in all-time history. <laughs> Here you had two teams that weren't expected to be there, and there they are in Texas Rangers in their first cycle ever. Yeah. Um, I think that the stat I saw was that um, more people watched, check me on this, but I believe more people watched the women's NCAA National Championship basketball game this year than watched the, the last game of the World Series. I believe it. Which, um, which indicates how far the, the society has come. And also sure. the, the diluted appeal of, of Major League Baseball, even, even, with its, even with the changes. Well, for one reason or another, this thought popped in my head about the 70s because Back in the day when Bill Beck was running the White Sox, he used to do these crazy things in the stadium and promotions. And we all know about Eddie Goodell, who knows history, with a midget coming to the plate. <laughs> and so in the 70s, we had Charlie Finley, who did some wild things. I think he was the one that came up with the orange baseballs, was it? Orange baseballs. Yeah, the orange baseballs, the pitchers hated them because whatever dye was used to make the the horsehide orange was slippery, and so they couldn't control it, and it just was a kind of a non-starter. The blue hockey puck in the World Hockey Association, the uh, the stars on the panels of the soccer ball in the North American Soccer League, and the the butterscotch-colored football in the World Football League, the football that was the same color as your mom's fondue pot. Those things lasted longer than the than the orange baseball did. And I think it was experimented a year or two in spring training and and uh, very visible, but everybody hated it. Well, that's what I know about the 70s. There were so many quirky things that happened with the Chicago White Sox and the shorts that they wore playing on the field. Uh, it was such a crazy decade. Uh, in your book, though, you wrote about the launch of ESPN, which became a huge media outlet. And it, the network did have some set, setbacks at one point. However, here we are today. There's still media monsters. There's so many other sports networks on television. Where do you see ESPN fitting in today? Where do you see ESPN fitting in today? Well, I, I think ESPN will always be the place 
that most sports fans go to first when there is sports news. Um, and, and that is because they were the first there. I mean, you know, we, we talked a little bit at the beginning about all that has changed. I can remember in the early 70s um, getting TV Guide, um, the, the national magazine with, with local TV listings, and they had a section in the front called Sports on TV, in which they would list all of the sports programming that was on TV that week. And, Harv, you can remember this. There were times, certainly in the spring, where you would have like four or five lines on a full Saturday. There would be one Major League Baseball game. There would be the Doral Open. There would be the Wide World of Sports and the American Sportsman, and that was it. And so by the end of the decade, you get this, for the first time, this unthinkable thing of a 24-hour sports network. It's Um, crazy. But what people realized was there was this thirst for more sports news. Among American sports fans, they didn't just want to know how the Pirates were doing. They wanted to know how that USC-Oregon game turned out last night. They wanted to know what was going on. Um, with Bill Walton and the Trailblazers in the NBA. They wanted to know, you know, what was happening with the Minnesota North Stars facing the Chicago Blackhawks for the division lead. Those sort of things were there, and the ability to bring video to that um, was was unprecedented, and, and there was a thirst for it. Um, and, and we saw that with some of the things ESPN did in the, the, just the first year of its existence. Um showing the first-round games in the NCAA basketball tournament, which at that time NBC couldn't, be, couldn't really be bothered with because it was Thursday, Friday, and, and, and so they, you know, they weren't going to preempt their regular programming. And then showing the NFL draft, I can remember reading the story of Bill Rasmussen, the founder of ESPN, calls up Pete Rozelle and says, we want to telecast the draft. Mm-hmm. And Rozelle is kind of taken aback and says, you know, it's – there's no players there. It's just a bunch of guys in suits on, on phones and stuff. <laughs> and, you know, the NFL let ESPN broadcast that draft in 1980 free of charge, which is the last time the NFL let anybody do anything free of charge. So, um, but ESPN tapped into that, that bottomless desire of sports fans to know what was going on everywhere and, and, they addressed that so well. And for all of the setbacks and the, all of the, you know, the blowhards that, that seem to be taking up most of the air in the room these days, um, ESPN is still valuable for that. Sure. And it, it, thinking back to what you were saying about Saturday sports, I mean, I sure do miss it. That was so awesome having a Saturday afternoon where you had a wide world of sports, CBS Sports Spectacular, Sports World. And I look forward to that. I mean, we look forward to that every Saturday, being able to tune into those shows. Uh, and it's unfortunate because, you know, as a kid growing up, uh, I would spend a lot of time outdoors playing sports, you know, being outdoors. And Saturday afternoon was it the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. Outdoors. Nowadays, you have so much sports on television. You have all these video games kids are playing, and you don't see it. Even in my neighborhood, you don't see kids outside playing. It shows how much time it's generous. Uh, and, and that's true. That's true, although I wouldn't blame... I wouldn't blame that on more sports because it's not as though the kids are just inside watching four college football games on a Saturday. They're doing other things, and they were probably going to be doing other things anyway. I do have to say, yes, I 
I can remember those times fondly as well. But if you gave me a choice between going back to the way it was in the first part of the 70s or having 30 different college football games to choose from on a Saturday, I'm going to take the present over the past every time. <laughs> well, yeah, you can pick and choose now. Uh, so, and, and talking about the draft, I was in New York for a while. And uh, so I had thought, yeah, I'm going to try to go down attend the draft. And the first year I went, I didn't, ex- I didn't know what to expect in Madison Square Garden. And my friend and I went down there. And there was a line a mile long to get in. Yep. And at about 5 to 12, they cut off. So we got within mm-hmm. 10 people of the front door, and they said, oh, sorry, no more. I said, oh, my God. I said, how am I going to get it? So next year, we went down at about 5, 30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and there was already a line. Uh, yeah. And I'll tell you, Michael, I got in that time, and I went to the next three or four drafts, and it was a blast. It was so much fun because you have all these football fans from all different teams, and you just spend the day talking football. And then you wait for your team to draft. It was a lot of fun. A great experience. And everybody has, in I can remember the, the writer Nick Hornby once described it as the hope that stings like chlorine. Everybody is just so plugged into, we're going to get our guy, and that's going to change things. And Yeah. Yeah, I was at the draft one time with McNabb. It went down with McNabb. I drafted, and they, the Philly fans booed him. Uh, I was at that draft. It was, and the Jets yeah. fans are always notorious <laughs> for booing who they pick. Uh but uh, the big time also includes the debut, uh, while talking about football here, of Monday Night Football, which took place on September 21st, 1970. Cleveland played the New York Jets, beat them 31-21. Joe Namath was the quarterback, and he was uh, quarterback, obviously, for the Jets, coming off the Super Bowl victory just two seasons before. Monday Night Football has gone through many changes since then, including networks and announcers. But in your opinion, who is the best broadcast team to ever cover Monday Night Football? And what do you think of the current day broadcast with all these flashy introductions in the last year? Oh, um, I think when you think Monday Night Football, you think of Frank Gifford, Howard Cosell, and Don Meredith. Gifford didn't join until 1971. But that, that was sort of the, the, the murderer's row, if you will. That sense that Ruth Arledge, the ABC producer, had that if football was going to succeed in prime time, you needed to dramatize the personalities, the conflict, the, the, the sort of narrative drama of what was going on in the field. You couldn't just point a camera at a football field and say, there goes Leroy Kelly up the middle for four yards. You had to be able to contextualize it put it within the larger serial drama of a season. You know, this is what this game means. This is the history that these two teams have. Arledge emphasized that with more cameras, more close-ups, but he also recognized that personalities in the booth matter. And there was, you know, there was no greater contrast in American sports than the New York Jew Howard Cosell and the homespun Texan Don Meredith. And um, and it was you know when it was good it was it was really good and really entertaining and um, you know certainly by the end of the seventies Cosell had declined and there was no one that was brought in that was quite as good as Meredith at, at what he did but the, the mere fact of sports succeeding on primetime and network television was revolutionary because even as late as nineteen sixty nine. 
when the NFL commissioner, Pete Rozelle, was pitching the series, the conventional wisdom held that sports couldn't exist on prime time network television because it was too male, too marginal, too parochial. And, you know, it, if only the same number of people who were watching on Sunday afternoons watched on Monday night, Monday night football would have been canceled after one year. So what Arledge realized he had to do with that mass audience was reach more casual fans, reach more females. And so it is not a coincidence that Joe Namath was on the very first Monday Night Football game. <laughs> and now today, 40% of the audience for the NFL is female. That's what's changed in 53 years. Did not know that. Yeah, so um, when they brought Dennis Miller on board, that was the worst Ever, in my opinion, he did such an awful job. I don't know what they were thinking, bringing Dennis Miller on as a as a on the broadcast team for Monday Night Football. On the broadcast team, he was trying too hard, and it was you understood why he was trying too hard because, you know, it's very difficult to say, "Oh, come on and be funny and crack jokes," and yeah. especially it didn't, you know, it didn't wear well with how serious people are about the NFL to begin with. You know, exactly. we don't want to hear a Johnny Carson routine. We're we're trying to see if if the Steelers can beat the Titans, for instance. Yeah, and Howard Cosell, I tell you, he he made his mark on history for sure. Um, I can still remember watching an interview with Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali before one of their fights, and Howard Cosell stuck in the middle between the two of them, and all he's out there with his little toy gorilla punching it. It was hilarious. For sure. Yeah. Well, my final question I have for you, Michael, is I understand Chuck Noll approached you to write his biography, and as a huge Steelers fan, that's one book I'll have to get my hands on. Can you briefly speak to what that experience was like and having met with such a great coach and fine human being that Chuck Noll was? And in addition to that, did you get a chance to meet Art Rooney Sr. by any choice? No, I didn't meet Art Rooney Sr., but let me let me set the, the Noll story straight. I had interviewed Dan Rooney, for my book, America's Game, which was the modern history of the NFL. And then I interviewed him again when I was writing a biography of um, the AFL founder and sportsman Lamar Hunt. Um, Rooney, as you recall, lifelong Republican who supported Barack Obama in 2008 and was rewarded for that support by being named ambassador to Ireland. Um, Sometime, I want to say in 2012, Ambassador Rooney was coming back to Pittsburgh and one of his people reached out to me and said, um, the ambassador would like to meet with you. Well, so summoned, I went to Pittsburgh and Dan Rooney said, somebody should write a book about Chuck Noll. And I thought you would be the one to do it. And I can remember the conversation. I, I said, you know, Dan, I'm, I'm, I am flattered that you would think of me. Um, and I'll certainly consider it, but, you know, the, the story has to be something more than just he was a good football coach. And Dan Rooney said, you look into it, you talk to some people, and and you see. And over the next, I don't know, two or three months, I visited Chuck and his wife, Marianne. I spoke to Tony Dungy, some of the other assistant coaches. I talked to Joe Green and some other people. And it was clear then that there was there was more to Chuck Noll than, than, than met the eye. And Chuck was already starting to experience the effects of Alzheimer's. So it was clear that um, 
you know, you could, he was still delightful company at dinner, but you couldn't sit down with Chuck and say, okay, in the third quarter of the 1974 AFC championship game, what did you strategically, you know, it, it wasn't like that. But I did get enough of the flavor of Chuck's relationship with his wife, Marianne, and there were enough people still willing to talk that I felt like it was something I could take on. So, so that was how that book came about. And, um, it was a labor of love and it was hard to do, but I, I feel like, um, I feel like I was able to tell Chuck's story, um, faithfully. And that's one of those books, uh, at the end of it, I felt like, yeah, this is, this did the job that it set out to do. Well, for Stewart's fans, I mean, anybody that is a Stewart's fan needs to get their hands on that book. Um, absolutely. So, as I said, Michael, this is just a small taste of what you wrote about in this book. There's so many more questions I could have asked you about the book, and I'd go as far as to say that Big Time could also serve as the 1970s Bible for sports and more. It's that thorough, and I highly recommend the book to those who love the 70s and for those who just want a serious history lesson for that era. I'd like to say, again, it's been an honor to have you on the show. I wish we had more time to talk about your book and other books you've authored. In closing, I'd like to give you the opportunity to provide our listeners with any new books you're currently writing or might be releasing, other projects you're involved in, how do they find you on the internet or social media, and of course, any parting thoughts you might have as well as where you can, where they can get your new book, The Big Time, and where it can be purchased. Excuse me. The Big Time can be bought any place that you buy books, um, online or, or in bookstores. Um, it should be available. And, uh, I have a website, um, michaelmccambridge.com, where you can um, see some of my other work. Um, if you want a signed copy of the book, you can order it there. Um, right now, I'm still trying to recover from spending two and a half more years in the 1970s, so I haven't decided what my what my next project's going to be. I'm still spending the fall doing uh, publicity appearances for the big time. Uh, I've got the Texas Book Festival coming up in another week, and... Um, and just trying to just trying to enjoy and figure out what the what the next project might be. Um, I'm looking at some things, but but nothing. I'm ready to to stand up and announce in public yet. But I will say that um, this was maybe the most ambitious book I've ever written, and certainly required the most research. Um, but it's it's really enjoyable when you're able to spend time with people who went through it and talking to people like Billy Jean King or Bill Bradley or Joe Green about what it was like in the seventies was, was just a joy. And I hope some of that joy um, comes out in the book because I think the, the book's thesis is that what happened in the seventies directly shapes the landscape of American sports today. And that it wasn't inevitable. It required um, actors and events and people changing the way things had been done. And because of that, sports is viewed by a much wider range of people than viewed sports in the beginning of the 1970s. Yeah, and, and I totally concur with that. And I, I really feel um, that I was fortunate to have grown up in the 70s because as we've already discussed, what a great decade of sports that was. Um, and so I got to ask you before I let you go, where are the Chiefs going to go this year? Oh, um, you know, being a Chiefs fan in the 2020s is a little bit like being a Steelers fan in the 70s. 
Um, you would not you would not say, oh, we're going to win it this year. But every year you feel like you got the best quarterback, you got the best coach, you've got a lot of things in your direction that you're going to be around in the end. Um, there are such fine margins in pro football that, you know, the Chiefs have hosted the last five AFC championship games. If a couple plays go in a different direction, you they could have won four of the last five Super Bowls. Sure. Also, if a couple of plays have gone in a different direction, they could have won zero of the last five Super Bowls. So I think one of the things that being a serious sports fan teaches is a certain measure of humility because you know that um, most championships come with a measure of good fortune. So no um, no wild predictions for what the Chiefs will do this year, but I, I do think they'll be around in January. I'll say that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're a solid team. And I know I follow you on Twitter, so people that want to look at oh, yes. you're there too. Um, McCambridge so, on Twitter, McCambridge on Instagram, and michaelmccambridge.com on the web. So your appearances for book signings, they can find on any one of those, right? Yes, and okay. um, and doing the Texas Book Festival the weekend of November 12th, and uh, signed copies available on michaelmccambridge.com, not just for this book, but for all the books. Excellent. Well, that'll close out Thanks another episode. Thanks my plug in there, Harv. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. My, my, I'm just, it's been an honor to have you on the show, and that's going to close out another episode of Total Sports Recall. And this has been an incredibly special one. Thanks to Michael McCambridge, who with his book, The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America, has allowed me to relive memories for growing up as a sports fan in that era. Next weekend, we'll bring another Total Sports Recall podcast. So be sure to watch the announcement of that episode. And you can always reach me on my Twitter using my handle at TSRHar59 or by email at totalsportsrecall at gmail.com. I still post videos on my YouTube channel, Total Sports Recall, and my website is continually updated, which you can view at www.totalsportsrecall.com. For Michael Cambridge, this is Harv Aronson wishing everyone a safe and wonderful week ahead. Contents of this podcast does not represent the opinions of others and is solely the opinions of Harv Aronson based on his experience, knowledge, and research.